Good morning and welcome to Crime Over Coffee. Part of our mini Monday series will include episodes surrounding wrongful convictions. Our wrongful convictions will be coming from the Innocence Project website. For those of you who do not know, the Innocence Project is a nonprofit organization that, by their definition, exonerates the wrongfully convicted through DNA testing and reforms the criminal justice system to prevent future injustices. This organization is widely known for the many cases in which they successfully have proved a person's innocence. For each wrongful conviction mini-episode, the information we are presenting can be found on innocenceproject.org. So pour yourself a cup of joe, and let's dive in. Our first wrongful conviction story starts with Floyd Bledsoe. Floyd served 15 years in prison before finally getting to walk away as a free man. This is his story. On Friday, November 5th, 1999, Zeta Camille Arfman, who was known as Camille, was a 14-year-old girl from Oskaloosa, Kansas, and she got off the school bus at her home around 4.20 p.m. that Friday. Camille lived with her older sister, Heidi, Heidi's two kids, and Heidi's husband, Floyd Bledsoe, who was 23 years old at the time. Around 5 p.m. that evening, one of Camille's friends came by the trailer to hang out, and when she got there, all she could find was Camille's coat and her book bag, but Camille wasn't there. This wasn't a major concern to her friend, but when Camille was not at church that evening, her family started a search for her, and when they couldn't find her, they pretty quickly called the police. There were flyers put around town, and on the evening of November 6th, 1999, the pastor of their church had actually received a voicemail on his answering machine from the brother of Floyd, whose name was Tom Bledsoe. The message basically said, I know where Camille is. When you get this message, I have turned myself into the police department. You don't know the grief that went through as I sat there thinking, I wish I never did it. I will pay for the rest of my life for what I've done. After he left this voicemail for the pastor, Tom supposedly called his parents and confessed to the same thing and then called the pastor again and left another voicemail for him saying, all I can ask for is forgiveness for what I have done. I will pay for the rest of my life for what I have done. Tom then went to the police and turned himself in. He even was able to turn over the murder weapon, which was a nine millimeter handgun that had been confirmed to be the weapon through ballistics testing. Tom straight up told the police, I did it. I killed her. And on top of being able to turn over the murder weapon, he was also able to lead police to where they could find Camille's body. Camille had been found in a trash dump on the farm that Tom had lived on with his parents, and the cause of death had been four gunshot wounds. Her top and her bra had been pushed up under her arms, suggesting that there had been some sort of molestation. The police investigated the burial site and found evidence that Camille's body had been drugged to the trash dump and then dropped there. Shortly after being arrested, Tom decided to recant his story and blame the whole thing on his brother Floyd. Tom said that Floyd is the one that committed the crime, and he'd confessed it to Tom during a conversation on Saturday. Tom's story was that Floyd had described the killing in detail and had told Tom where Camille's body was hidden. Okay, wait, but, like, why would Tom turn himself in for something Floyd had supposedly done? So, Tom actually claimed that he went with this story because Floyd had supposedly threatened to 
out Tom for attempting to have sex with a dog and for masturbating while watching pornography. The first part's really bad. The second part, I mean, is normal. I feel like that is something that's definitely a lot more normal than having sex with a dog. So this was enough, apparently, for Tom to decide, okay, I'll just turn myself in and I'll take the blame for this crime. But when Tom is sitting there with the police talking with them, he just tells them this entire story and the police decide, oh, well, Tom didn't do it. So he's just taking the blame for his brother. We'll let him go. And they actually go and arrest and charge Floyd with first degree murder, aggravated kidnapping, and aggravated indecent liberties with a child, which is going to be that molestation that we were talking about. Floyd had a trial in April of 2000, and he actually had to wear a bulletproof vest for this trial because he was getting so many death threats from the family of Camille. The prosecution basically accused Floyd of admitting to police that Camille was attractive, and they decided that this was too creepy for somebody to say about a 14-year-old girl. Whether or not he actually said it, I don't know, but it was something that was discussed during the trial. It was also a concern because Floyd was supposedly in the plans of divorcing his wife, Heidi, who was Camille's older sister. Tom actually testified against Floyd and stood in trial and gave the details of how and when Floyd confessed to the murder of Camille. So did Floyd ever say, I did not do this? Floyd was denying the entire thing. Floyd was like, I didn't do this. I don't know why you guys are accusing me. And I don't know what's up with my brother. Yeah. So Tom said that Floyd was sitting in his car and Tom drove up to it and they sat in their vehicles parked facing the opposite direction with their windows next to each other. But they had left their cars running and they were talking between the windows. And that is the place on the side of the road where Floyd admitted to killing Camille and gave the evidence. And as far as I could find There was never a point where Tom tries to say, oh, look, Floyd gave me the gun at this point in time. And there was actually evidence that Tom had been the one to purchase the gun a few weeks later. I guess I'm having a hard time understanding after the confession and everything and all that evidence, why in the world they were just like, "Mm, Floyd looks pretty good for this when Tom was so clearly questionable. Yeah, questionable to say the least. And it gets a little bit worse. So something that the defense failed to discuss during the trial was the fact that Tom had a hearing problem to the point where he couldn't even hear somebody sitting next to him talking to him during a normal conversation. He had to face them and read their lips. So how did he hear through car windows? Of running vehicles. Of running vehicles, yeah. Yeah, the confession. It was not anything that got brought up during the trial. Well, and also, who just confesses to a murder like that? Like, casually through your car windows? I mean, I feel like... I guess I don't know the proper way to confess to a murder. Like, the proper setting. But I don't think that this is the right... It's extra strange. There's a lot of things with it that just don't make sense. So, the boys' father actually testified in court as well. And served as an alibi for Tom. So he was the father of both Tom and Floyd and decided, I'm going to take Tom's side and we're going to just pin it all on Floyd. So this was something that the jury and everybody in the court decided, well, there's no way Tom could have done it. His father, his alibi. But I want to tell you what the alibi was. 
Oh, gosh. So his father said that Tom had been with him and his mother at an auction until 1 p.m. And by the time that his father and mom got home, Tom was already asleep by 10 p.m. that night. And then if Tom had left his house, then a security alarm would have gone off when Tom had opened the door and it would have woke his father up. Because he wouldn't know how to shut off the alarm in his own house? Well, not only that, but if we remember correctly, it was five o'clock when we know that Camille couldn't be found. Oh. So we don't know where he was between 1 p.m. and 10 p.m., but... So that doesn't, that doesn't add up either. No, but the jury's like, oh, you have an alibi. That works. Yikes. It just, it doesn't make any sense That's, to me. It's so cringy. And there was no forensic evidence of any sort that could tie it to Floyd and the rape kit came back negative. There was really nothing conclusively tying Floyd to this crime. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. During the trial, they had wanted to bring Floyd's two-year-old son, Cody, up to the stand to testify, but because of his age, they decided not to have him testify, and so they actually had the pastor's wife come up and testify, who had apparently overheard Cody telling a story where... And this is exactly how the story went, according to her. She said that Cody had stated, Tom shot Camille, boom, 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 and dumped her in the water. Tom put his, as in Cody's, blanket around Camille and also put Camille's blanket around her. Tom closed Camille's eyes and he kissed her cheeks. And coming from a two-year-old, I'm assuming that there's a little bit of Differences and like the exact wording that was used, but that was the gist that the pastor's wife got from this. And Floyd's wife, Heidi, also testified that she and the pastor's wife had asked Cody what had happened, and Cody described it the exact same way that time as well. So not only is it the pastor's wife, but it's also Camille's older sister, Heidi, saying the exact same thing that Cody had said. However, according to, I'm not really sure who, but... Cody's statement ended up changing a few days after Floyd had been arrested, and he started saying that Daddy killed Camille. So he started blaming it on Floyd, even though he was originally saying Tom. I think it's hard when you're asking a young child about stuff, but they most certainly can also be coerced into changing what they're saying. 
Exactly. And if his uncle's sitting there saying, no, 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 daddy did it, not me, you're confused. Two-year-olds don't, we've talked about it before, they don't always understand what's happening. So witnesses that were called to the stand actually testified that Floyd had spent the entire day that Camille had gone missing working on a dairy farm, and he didn't even arrive home until midnight. And there were witnesses saying that he had been there that entire time. And then apparently, as soon as Floyd got home from work and knew that Camille had been missing, he immediately went on a search. And there's, like, hours in the middle of the night from, like, midnight to, like, 5 a.m. where he's known to be out searching for Camille. And I don't know if they turned this into the fact that maybe that was when he was, like, committing the crime or what, but that also then begs the question of where Camille was between 4.30 and midnight. On April 28th, 2000, Floyd was convicted of first-degree murder, aggravated kidnapping, and aggravated indecent liberties with a child, and he was sentenced to life in prison plus 16 years. That's wild. I thought that was insane. In 2004, after the Kansas Supreme Court supported Floyd's convictions and his sentencing, there was a hearing held on a motion for a new trial alleging that Floyd's attorney had provided a constitutionally inadequate defense at trial, which basically just means that he didn't do everything in his power to defend Floyd during the trial. Which, I don't know the details specifically of the trial, but I'm going to go with, yeah, he probably didn't do his job as well as he could have. I mean, one of the things that they did bring up was the fact that, like, with Tom's hearing, and that wasn't something that was brought up during the trial on the defense side, and I think that's something that could have really stood on their side. I agree. So, the motion for a new trial was actually denied, and in 2007, the Kansas Supreme Court actually upheld the decision to stick with that motion of denial, even though the court found that the prosecution had improperly discussed facts that were not in evidence and they misstated evidence and testimonies in their closing argument to the jury, which is something that is a big no-no. I can imagine why, because if something like that happens, that's how you get, say, wrongful convictions. Yeah, exactly. And the court actually also said that Floyd's defense attorney had made numerous mistakes, including introducing Cody's statements, suggesting that to the jury, the case was too similar to that of Susan Smith, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Um, It was a woman who years earlier had claimed her children were abducted and only to later admit that she had drowned them in a lake. So it kind of made it impossible for the jury to look at this case objectively when there's a child giving their opinion on it. The court also stated that Floyd's defense attorney, like we had said, had made numerous mistakes and really failed to do his job. Was he attorney who was hired or was he state appointed? I guess I don't 100% know. I couldn't find anywhere. I'm going to kind of assume that this guy was just state appointed because it seems silly to hire somebody and then if they weren't supporting you enough, I feel like I'd probably fire them and try to find somebody new. But if he couldn't afford it, then it was probably just somebody that was appointed. Still, the court said that even with the errors that were presented, it was not enough. And the exact statement that they made in regards to why they were denying the request for a retrial was, quote, on the record before us, this was a difficult case. Two brothers accused each of vile crimes 
There was ample evidence to support each accusation. The jury, after weighing all of its substance and the credibility of the many witnesses, was persuaded that the state prosecuted the Wright brother. Although in the hands of another defense lawyer, the case may have been tried to another conclusion. However, may is not enough, end quote. I think may is something that really should be enough because that's reasonable doubt. That's reasonable. Yeah. And someone shouldn't be convicted if there's reasonable doubt. Floyd then filed a federal petition for a right of habeas corpus. And in 2008, a U.S. district court judge granted the petition on the ground that Floyd's lawyer had provided a constitutionally inadequate defense like we had talked about previously, just meaning that his lawyer did not defend him to his full capabilities. And Floyd was released on bond while the prosecution appealed. And about a year later, the 10th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals reversed the lower court decision and reinstated Floyd's conviction and his sentence. And they basically just said that it could not conclude that the Kansas Supreme Court's decision was unreasonable. So, Floyd ended up going back to prison to continue serving his lifetime sentence. In 2013, the Project for Innocence and Post-Conviction had a law student with a degree in forensics investigating this case and representing Floyd. And this guy's name was Paul Wilson. And they started doing DNA testing, but they were kind of limited because they didn't really have a ton of resources to use. So in 2014, this project joined the Midwest Innocence Project and DNA testing of the vaginal swab, the sexual assault kit, and the clothing of the victim were conducted. And this testing identified DNA consistent with none other than Tom Bledsoe based on the vaginal swab. Floyd was excluded completely from the vaginal swab and testing identified the DNA of Tom's father on the victim's socks, suggesting that he'd helped drag the victim to the burial site. Which would make sense since he tried to provide an alibi for Tom. Still not a great alibi, but yes, he tried to provide an (laughs) alibi. He tried. (laughs) Keyword. During the investigation of the case, the lawyers also discovered that there was an order signed by the prosecutor, the county sheriff, and a representative of the Kansas Bureau of Investigation prior to his trial, agreeing that there would not be any DNA testing of any of the evidence, which to me is ridiculous. Like, how can you go to trial for a murder, have DNA evidence, and just decide, nah, we're not gonna use it, both the defense and the prosecutor? Well, that definitely goes back to the defense not doing their job. Which completely sucks for Floyd because he ended up spending 15 years of his life in prison for a crime that he did not commit because his defense did not do their job. If it would have just been tested, none of this would be happening. Yes. And in October of 2015, lawyers for Floyd filed a motion to vacate his convictions and his sentencing based on the DNA results. And then another bombshell for you. On November 9th, 2015, so shortly after all the DNA results have been received, Floyd's brother Tom commits suicide. So 16 years after the crime, he commits suicide and leaves behind several suicide notes admitting to killing Camille after he raped her. In one of the notes, he actually addressed his parents and said, 
Floyd is innocent and asked his parents to tell Floyd, I'm sorry. And there were multiple other notes. I'm not going to go through each of them, but he basically just kept admitting to raping and murdering 14-year-old Camille and to sending an innocent man to prison. And in one of the notes, he actually drew a map showing where the shell casings could be found, which was less than 20 yards from where the victim's body had been buried. And using a metal detector, detectives were able to find a shell casing buried beneath an inch or two of dirt, about 24 feet from that location. So on December 8th, 2015, over 15 years after Floyd had been in prison, his charges were officially dropped and was a free man. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepot at outlook.com. If you would like to support us, go to anchor.fm forward slash Erica dash Abby. Donations to our podcast are greatly appreciated and go into making the podcast possible. If you like us, you can recommend us or give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us on your podcast listening medium. Thank you so much. Thank you.